Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Nicole O'Byrne, and I'm a legal historian at the Faculty of Law, University of New Brunswick, which is located on the unceded and unsurrendered land of the Willastiquick. Today, I'll be interviewing Keith Mercer about his book, Rough Justice, Policing Crime and the Origin of the Newfoundland Constabulary, 1729 to 1871. Keith Mercer was born in Gander, Newfoundland, and holds graduate degrees in history from Memorial and Dalhousie Universities. He works for Parks Canada as the Cultural Resource Management in mainland Nova Scotia. In May 2022, I saw Keith's presentation at the biannual Atlantic Canada Studies Conference in Fredericton. His work is fascinating, and it makes a significant and much-needed contribution to the literature about the history of policing in Newfoundland and Canada more generally. Thanks for joining us on Witness to Yesterday. My pleasure. Thank you, Nicole. The Royal Newfoundland Constabulary was founded in 1871 at the end of the historical period covered by your book. Why did you decide to write about the history of policing in Newfoundland before the RNC was established? Now, that's a good question. I think a book reviewer looking at one recently asked the same question. I think they picked up the book, not unreasonably, and thinking that they're going to get an institutional history of the force, maybe focusing on the on the 20th century, the, the modern history, uh, perhaps starting in 1871. But it's not that. Obviously, it's a very different kind of book. Um, so this was a commissioned book. And I would say that the cutoff in 1871 was driven by that. So it wasn't wasn't by me alone. The RNC Historical Society, so the Heritage Group that commissioned this work, I think they always envision two volumes. Uh, my sense is that they have a kind of a model built up in their mind. Uh, G.W.L. Nicholson, he wrote a very highly regarded two-volume book called The Fighting Newfoundlander, uh, the history of the Royal Newfoundland Regiment on the larger military heritage of Newfoundland. Uh, and I think they saw that as a model in, in terms of kind of accessibility uh, scope, maybe also quality and size. So I think they they always had two volumes in mind. Uh, now I should say uh, before I, I talk about my book that there is a second volume in the works to be written by a different author, and it's nearing uh, nearing publication, kind of inching closer. And it does take the story from 1871 up to 1949, and 49 is when Newfoundland joined Confederation, and you would have seen the introduction of the RCMP to the island too. Um, but two volumes wasn't a foregone conclusion. At the start, I think it's fair to say it was open. It was an open question of whether it was actually a story to tell in the earlier period, pre-1871, on the origins of the RNC and policing in Newfoundland. If you looked at the historiography, it was kind of tiny and dated, and it certainly didn't leave that impression. It kind of left the impression of 1871 as the starting point. You look at kind of 
surveys of the legal historiography of Newfoundland tended to leave policing out altogether. So it, it kind of left that impression. But what I would say after a reconnaissance of the primary sources uh, in the archives and a reconnaissance of the the wider literature on early modern policing uh, in Newfoundland, I did determine that there was, was a very interesting story to tell here on the origins, if you will, kind of challenging that 1871 chronology. And to be completely honest, I was much more comfortable, I think, in this earlier period. I'm an historian of early modern Newfoundland and Atlantic Canada, not just in my scholarship, but um, but also my day job with Parks Canada. So I think this time frame was more in my wheelhouse um, than, say, the 20th century. I think I also saw an opportunity here to do a social history of policing and the law in early Newfoundland, a kind of grassroots type of analysis on the lived experience of constables and the, and the way in which people experience the law that's kind of missing from the literature, uh, rather than an institutional or, say, a company history. So I really liked that idea. In the introduction, you mentioned that the term rough justice has many contexts. Could you explain why you chose that phrase for the title of your book? Certainly. There's a deeper meaning here uh, to the title, which I'll get to in a minute. But I will say, and I want to be honest, that in writing a book or an article for that matter, you know, I always try to come up with a title that's catchy, uh, you know, that, that kind of drags readers in and, and makes them want to read. So I think that's important. So I think kind of I think rough justice kind of fits that bill. Uh, I also say that, uh, you know, I, I did my doctoral work at Dalhousie in Halifax, and when I was doing my work there, the history department has an undergraduate seminar, a very popular seminar called Rough Justice, and it's a it's a course that focuses on the social history of Canada, you know, order, disorder, popular culture, and popular culture, and that kind of thing. So the course is really popular. I think I even served as a TA at one point, and something about that term you know, kind of just stuck with me a few years later when I was embarking on this project. Now, for the book itself, uh, Rough Justice also reflected some of the key arguments I was trying to make in the book. So in this sense, the term rough justice has a kind of dual meaning or a double meaning. The first thing I would say is, is that in the 18th to 19th century, these constables who were part-timers, untrained policemen, were thrown into a kind of rough and tumble world of legal justice. Sometimes in these isolated communities, they were the only law officers around. So their job was to enforce legal decisions made by the courts. And in doing so, they often worked alone in very vulnerable situations. You could be making an arrest, attaching someone's property to settle a debt, inflicting corporal punishments and that kind of thing. So, that, so the work by its very nature was rough work, rough justice. So dispensing justice, in other words, on the ground was physical and demanding and dangerous, but they also experienced rough justice in return. They were inflicting state-sponsored punishments and justice, but that also made them the target of popular resistance. So they received rough justice in return. So I think the legal world, the world they lived on the ground, kind of had that context. But I also had a second meaning in mind, an historiographical one, if you will. So if rough justice describes the situation on the ground, it also captures the way in which constables before the establishment of the new police, and I'm using ear quotes here, the new police of the 19th century were ignored, criticized, and I would say even mocked at the time, first by Victorian reformers, uh, politicians, police reformers, 
using that kind of Whiggish march towards progress narrative. And later, really, by several generations of historians and even legal historians. So in that context, the historiographical context, early constables experienced rough justice from their critics and their scholars. Now, in this book, I try to turn those two things around, so to challenge them. On the ground, I try to show that rather than these bumbling kind of characters in a play, like Dogberry and Shakespeare's uh, play, that these men, these constables, were key players in the colonial justice system. They played an important role in attending the courts and actually enforcing its decrees, its laws on the street. And one of the, the central arguments I try to make is this justice system, uh, the local court system, just simply could not have worked without them, period. As for the literature, I challenged that kind of traditional timeline and chronology associated with the start of modern policing. What I found, in Newfoundland at least, and this is backed up by emerging scholarship in Canada and the UK on policing, is that this kind of change often took the form of a slow-moving evolution rather than a nice and neat political milestone or revolution or clean breaks with the past, i.e. 1871 as a starting point. I recently went to St. John's to do some research myself, and because I had read your book, I decided I had better go to the RNC Museum and also visit the legacy sculpture of the RNC officer that's in downtown St. John's. It seems to me that the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary Historical Society is sincerely dedicated to preserving and understanding the story of policing in Newfoundland. As a professional historian, what were some of the challenges and expectations you encountered writing a book sponsored by a historical society that's so dedicated to telling its story? First off, I would say I think that's definitely true. I think they've been devoted since the, la since the late 1980s, uh, really uh, trying to commemorate and uh, capture the history and the heritage uh, of policing in Newfoundland, particularly of the RNC for, for the public and for future generations. So I think that interest is really authentic. Uh, and while you were in St. John's, I suspect you spent some time at the rooms. So that's the very place where I would have done most of the research uh, for this book. So it was a nice connection there. As you say, this was a commissioned work. Uh, that was new for me, and it's not the kind of way that scholars typically go about their research and writing projects. So normally, you know, you bring in colleagues from time to time to be critics of your drafts when you're writing something, or you create your own pressures. Say, you know, you have a pressure because you want uh, tenure or something like that, or, you, you know, you're trying to improve your CV. Uh, but you work independently, and the time and pace is typically your own. So this experience was different than that. Um, I was hired, I was commissioned to write this volume, and I was paid a salary, and I worked on it full time for a couple of years. So that so that's different. I would say a couple things uh, about this dynamic. Uh, in terms of content, uh, the book really is no different than any other scholarly pursuit that I've embarked on. Uh, in terms of the arguments, uh, the content, all those sorts of things, uh, I had free reign. I had complete creative independence, and I wouldn't have I wouldn't have done it otherwise. Uh, so I think uh, that's important, and I think the society, you know, in embarking on a project like this, should be proud of that too. For me, I would say, and I'm trying to be honest here, the greatest challenge was timing. Uh, there was an expectation, a pressure you could say, to produce results, namely to finish this book on such and such a time frame. Uh, 
uh, targets, in other words. And I agreed to those targets, those expectations when I signed up. So fair play. But what I would also say is that life does intervene, right? Real life. Uh, and uh, in my case, it could be it could be a growing young family, right? Uh, and, it, you know, it could be other things. Uh, but there's also just the nature of a research and writing project that it doesn't typically go in a nice, neat, straight line, that it goes off in all kinds of directions. And it takes longer than expected. So that kind of clashes with this. Um, and then maybe you have to, I don't know, you have to come up with other sources of employment or, or, or funding to try to, uh, you know, to make ends meet and to finish the job. So I think that kind of dynamic and pressure is unique here uh, and different than in most scholarly pursuits. In the end, though, what I would say is that my experience, my experience was a positive one. You know, I really enjoyed this foray into a new field, uh, legal history uh, and police studies. You know, I'm proud of the, the book. Um, and, you know, I see all kinds of spinoff uh, research and writing projects in my future coming from this stuff. Uh, so, you know, I'm excited by it. Uh, and I think, uh, yeah, and I think there's more to come. Great. Well, let's get into the content a little bit. Um, there's a fairly well-established impression that the history of Newfoundland is characterized by lawlessness, illegal settlements, and sectarian violence. How does this impression arise, and how is it being debunked by modern historical scholars such as Greg Marquis? That's a great question. I think some of those more sensational themes are alive and well, I would say, judging by the titles and contents in, in local bookstores. So that's first off. So I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, D.W. Prowse, a judge and big kind of personality, in 1895, wrote a thick book, 700-odd uh, pages, called A History of Newfoundland from the English Colonial and Foreign Records. And anyone familiar with Newfoundland history, or probably even Atlantic Canadian history, has come across this tome. This book's influence cannot really be overstated, even today, 125 years later. And you see that, especially in things like popular history, fiction, folklore, historical tourism, all these sorts of things. Historian Jerry Bannister has written extensively about Prowse's legacy and the subject of historical memory and victimhood. Among other things, Prowse between the British West Country migratory fishing interests and then the settlers who came to reside in Newfoundland informally or illegally, as he would put it, against the wishes of these cruel merchants and their government allies in London. So in this tale, the settlers are the victims. And the merchants and the government from away are the villains. And this becomes the, the beginning of a type of victimhood historical nationalism narrative that lives on to today. So things like law and order or the lack thereof, or anarchy, were emphasized to support this narrative, Prowse's narrative. So Newfoundland was unique or exceptional, if you will. The problem with that, seen in the larger Canadian uh, an Atlantic context is that Newfoundland wasn't all that exceptional, and modern scholarship is really debunking this. The late Peter Pope, uh, my master's supervisor, uh, for instance, showed that settlement in Newfoundland in the 17th and early 18th centuries was really on par, very similar to developments in, in neighboring colonies like French Acadia or Maine in New England. 
even more, all of these colonies and their associated industries interacted in the same Atlantic world of trade, migration, and communication. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, Jerry Bannister has argued that the system of naval government, as he calls it, or even the naval state, things like governors, courts, magistrates, and penal institutions, may have looked a little different than its British North American colonial neighbors, but in practice fulfilled the same legal and operational function. Newfoundland was not that exceptional, in other words, when seen in this larger Atlantic and legal context. Now, in my book, I try to make the same argument about policing. Rather than difference or even absence, you could say, in some, in some ways, I see similarities with British and Canadian jurisdictions. This could be the early part-time constables who served as officers of the court, or later the small urban constabulary uh, that was created in St. John's in the 19th century. So what seem like major differences on the surface in terms of things like structure and terminology and dates and that kind of thing, what they do is mask similarities in how the courts and the law actually function on the ground in real life. So, for example, Newfoundland didn't have counties and still doesn't. But it did have districts and it did have a district legal system. So kind of the same thing or very similar. In the urban example I mentioned of the St. John's Constabulary in the early 19th century, St. John's didn't have municipal government or a town council until very late, late in the 19th century, which was a driver of police reform in British North America, as Marquis and others mentioned. But it did have local government. It did have local regulations in the city. It did have a grand jury and many of the trappings of municipal government. And it did have a full-time paid urban constabulary. So, once again, not exactly a picture of Newfoundland exceptionalism. Your book is primarily about the history of policing in Newfoundland, but it's much broader than that. You explore the social and political history of Newfoundland as a separate colony and nation, as part of the Atlantic world. I found the larger themes fascinating, but I also found the details in your study intriguing, such as the role of uh, fishing admirals and tavern keepers. How did fishing admirals play a role in establishing law and order? And why did tavern keepers need to be constables in order to apply and retain a liquor license? The fishing admiral was a custom that grew out of the international fishery in the 16th and 17th centuries. This was a huge industry for people studying that period of uh, Canadian history, uh, much bigger than, say, the fur trade, the other Canadian staple with hundreds of ships coming over each year from Western Europe to catch their fish, to dry it on shore, and then bring it back to markets uh, in Western Europe again. So it was a huge industry and it was international in scope. Now at this time, there was no settlement and obviously no legal institutions on shore to police and regulate this trade. And it was a huge trade. To address that, the merchants of the different nations agreed on a custom whereby the captain of the first ship to arrive in a harbor in a season was designated as the admiral of that harbor. So in the first instance, this meant that as the first person to arrive, they had the choicest pick of beach space, the, the best property on shore from which to catch their fish, to set up, up their, their operations, and to send their boats out uh, to the open sea. 
But the admiral of the harbor was also given the responsibility of, res of resolving disputes amongst the different crews. So a legal responsibility. The vice and rear admirals, so the second and the third captains to arrive in a particular harbor, were supposed to assist him in this duty, this legal duty. These captains, as I've mentioned, could be international in scope, so they could be English, French, Portuguese, Basque, and so on. As the English came to dominate uh, the fishery in the eastern part of Newfoundland in the 17th century and to create settlements and colonies, this legal code or custom became part of early legal and constitutional documents on Newfoundland, such as the Western Charter. Now, for Prowse and later writers, which I've already mentioned, this was all great fodder that fit with his narrative of anarchy in early Newfoundland. It gave rise to folklore about fishing admirals' courts held aboard a ship, corruption, quarterdeck justice, and all these sorts of things. The reality, it seems, was a little more mundane and simple. During a busy fishing season, fishing captains who were there to do fishing, this is the sole purpose of them being there, didn't have the time nor the inclination to get involved in legal matters. So they didn't, for the most part. They may have resolved some disputes about, fit, about beach space amongst their neighboring crews, but for the most part, they ignored their responsibilities uh, as set out in the fishing admiral system. Now, it took a long while for the British government to recognize uh, that the system just didn't work. It also took them a long while to recognize that they had a responsibility to provide governance and law to several thousand of its citizens residing in Newfoundland, just like it did for other uh, colonies. This led, in turn, 1729 to the appointment of a governor, courts, and also the first magistrates and constables in the history of Newfoundland. Now, the tavern keeper system of policing, which I've termed it in this book, was just as, just as colorful, but a little more practical. By the Napoleonic period, so the 1790s and, and early 1800s, there developed in St. John's a system whereby tavern keepers, public, publicans as the, as the keepers of public houses, were compelled to moonlight as constables in return for obtaining their liquor licenses. This was no joke, and as bizarre as it may seem to read or to listen to at first glance, for about a generation, 20 or 30 years, these men were the only policemen in town, in the capital. So, for example, in 1807, Robert Parsons, who was the owner of the West India Coffee House Tavern, doubled as the high constable of the capital. It's unclear exactly when or why this system came into being. Those records just haven't survived. But once again, what I would say is you see this theme of local custom evolving into law. In St. John's, the magistrate was responsible for the appointment and the supervision of police constables. They were normally appointed at the, at the fall quarter sessions the same time every year, about October, for the ensuing year. The exact same time that magistrates also issued their liquor licenses, and these things became formally linked. Not only were they linked, but constables were warned as a precondition of obtaining their liquor licenses and thus their livelihood, you would expect, that they could be revoked for not fulfilling their police duties 
or if they ran a disorderly public house. And it was no bluff. I can see in, in the court records and the documents that survived that several tavern keepers had their licenses revoked for not acting as policemen. The court records show these moonlighting constables in action as officers of the St. John's courts, the lower courts, but also the criminal assizes and the Supreme Court of Newfoundland. They attended court. They gave evidence. They served a, a, long, a wide array of court orders. They attended to juries. They meted out punishments. And we'll get to this in a, a little later. They also started walking the beat, ironically, inspecting the same taverns and moral regulation of alcohol uh, that they did in their day jobs. During the War of 1812, in the context of a security threat, it was decided that a full-time constabulary was now needed in St. John's. The tavern keeper was replaced, but not completely. Several holdovers from the old system became members of this new full-time force. So you see the continuity. And to pay for this reform, the governor made a bargain and a deal with the, the government home in London. He promised that it would not cost him a penny. He increased the fees that he was going to issue for liquor licenses. And in return, this revenue would be paid, would be used to pay for the police. And it was, thus linking policing and public houses in Newfoundland for decades to come. That's a fascinating connection. Uh, what was the average day like for a constable in Newfoundland during the time period covered in your book? Did it vary greatly from what was happening in other Canadian jurisdictions at the time? And how did the job change dramatically, or did the job change dramatically, once the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary was established in 1871? So first and foremost, constables in the 18th and 19th centuries in Newfoundland were officers of the court. That's the simplest way to explain it. They were appointed by the courts, their magistrates, or justices of peace in their respective districts, and they answered to the courts, these same magistrates. Outside of St. John's, from about 1812 onward, with the establishment of the first full-time and salary constabulary, these constables were part-time amateurs. They had no training, and they had day jobs. So I guess to answer your question quite literally, in that sense, most of their time was spent on things other than policing, it was spent on their day jobs, on their personal and private matters, not on enforcing the law. But as officers of the court, they did attend the courts uh, when they were in session, and they carried out court orders throughout the year. This meant especially the quarter sessions in their respective districts, presided over by the magistrate four times a year, but also the assizes in the Supreme Court and the naval surrogate courts, amongst others. So when court was in session, constables throughout the district were mandated to be present during those sittings. They provided security in the courthouse itself. They attended to juries and prisoners, kind of acting like bailiffs when there weren't that many resources available. They escorted parties to hearings. They gave evidence and testimony. Uh, so they did a lot of different things uh, related to court sittings. They also served the court's many orders, as I've mentioned. And in this way, they became the operational arm of the law. It was constables, I would say, and I think this is an important point, that for the most part, rather than magistrates who executed court orders, who knocked on doors, who were walking on the street enforcing the law, they were usually the first way that civilians experienced the law. 
And these kinds of orders, these court orders, were everything you'd expect. Summons, subpoenas, warrants of arrest and, and, and seizure, attachments, punishments, and so forth. Over time, I would say, uh, those duties became more complex and more numerous. And a whole range of miscellaneous functions were added to the constable's workload. This could include things like inspecting roads and buildings. Some of these things came into grand jury presentments in the courts at duties. Walking the beat on Sundays to regulate the Sabbath and the illegal sale of alcohol. Rounding up and killing nuisance animals in the streets, dogs especially. Pursuing military deserters, securing shipwrecks, dealing with the quarantine of towns when infectious diseases have arrived aboard ships. Uh, compiling censuses and voter lists, all sorts of things like this. And then when Newfoundland finally got its own legislature and the ability to pass its own laws in the 1830s, lots of these new laws started having applicability to the constables and adding to their workload. So it became, became more complex over time. Comparatively speaking, as I mentioned earlier, for the most part, I don't see a whole lot of difference and these kinds of police, police duties and responsibilities on a day-to-day -day level between, say, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia and Quebec. I see these similarities in some of the excellent scholarship in recent years by folks like Donald Fison and, and Greg Marquis. I think on the surface, in terms of structure and milestones, it's easy to point out the differences. But I think where it matters on the ground and in the function, the operational function, I think the everyday job of the constable had more similarities than differences across jurisdictions. For the Newfoundland constabulary acting after 1871, I guess we'll have to wait uh, for the next, the next book to come out, uh, to be sure. But again, what I would emphasize is the theme of continuity in everyday policing, at least at first. The new force had a new structure, it certainly had more organization and bureaucracy, kind of based on the model of the Royal Irish Constabulary, new uniforms and recruitment standards and, and all these sorts of things. But I suspect that the job was quite similar between, say, the 1860s, right before that milestone, and the 1870s and 1880s. Some policemen from the old system in both rural and urban settings joined this new force, so the transition couldn't have been that complex from, from what they knew before. Now, I think as the years move on, uh, the new force certainly came into its own as an organization, and I think some of those changes become bigger, and the position of a constable perhaps becomes a bit more of a professional calling. The work also becomes more preventative, too, instead of simply responding uh, to crime. But, and I would emphasize this point about this, this slow evolution of policing reform, I don't think these kind of changes happen overnight. Your work illustrates that constables played a vital role in community life in Newfoundland during the 18th and 19th centuries. Who was likely to become a constable and how did they work with local magistrates? And then I'm very interested to know about some of the crime and punishments that might surprise our listeners. I do think constables played a vital role in community life, and I hope uh, my book uh, shows that. They were members of that community, and as I've said already, they were basically the operational wing of the justice system. That system, uh, the court system, as well as municipal regulations, simply could not have functioned without them. 
I think they were that important. The social background of early constables is fascinating, and I do spend a lot of time on this in the book. Now, what I found is that constables were overwhelmingly from middling occupations. You could say middle class, for lack of a better term, a historical term at this point, perhaps. The vast majority of them were planters. That's the owners and operators of small fishing operations, tavern keepers, and artisans. They were men of respect as well as property in their communities, and they tended often to perform other civic functions too in their districts, such as serving on juries. So Trinity, a district on the East Coast, has almost a complete series of court records dating to the early 1750s. And these records, along with others such as parish records, I was able to create a case study of the district's constable. So you get into some of the detail here. So I know Trinity perhaps more or better than pretty much any other district. Now, what's interesting in comparing the social background of Newfoundland's early constables, especially in rural settings to other jurisdictions, there's not a lot to go on in that historiography, uh, but there is a little bit. For instance, historian, legal historian Peter King did produce this kind of analysis on constables in Essex County, in southern England, in the 18th century. In my work in Newfoundland, I didn't find any laborers or servants, so members of the working class, if you will, who served as constables. Again, they were from the they were from a, a strata, social strata that was a little higher in their districts. By comparison, in late Stuart and Georgian England, as King and others have shown, the trend seemed to be going in the other direction, with more laborers as constables and generally a devaluing of that kind of police work in society generally. So in Newfoundland, uh, the comparison would be that you see people of respect for middling occupations fulfilling these roles, which speaks to the importance of the roles, I would say. And then home in, in the UK, you see the a kind of lack of respect uh, for the constable and the constable's work as increasingly filled uh, by people uh, from a lower social strata than in Newfoundland. In terms of crime and punishment, I spend considerable time in the book emphasizing the, the range of these activities on both sides. But I also emphasize that punishment was likely the worst part of a constable's job. He did not look forward to this kind of work. For the courts or the state, if you will, there was an element of physical retribution in public punishments and also a belief that deterrence worked. Did it? I guess, I guess the jury's still out on that one. For the constables, however, this meant, or whoever was present, other law officers, this meant arresting and punishing their fellow neighbors, which couldn't have been great for their popularity in these small communities. It also occasionally made them the targets of popular and sometimes violent resistance. So punishment was not a favorite part of the job. And there were all kinds of uh, different, different punishments that they were asked to perform uh, or to assist in um, in their different districts. Some of the more common ones included the stocks. So this is kind of like the pillory. Um, the stocks, though, focus on the on the feet, a wooden structure that kind of keeps you tied to a, a post and your, your, your legs are through these holes. Um, the stocks and whipping posts would have been present in every district capital, typically in a public place, 
pretty close to the courthouse, I would say. And uh, the constables were responsible for putting people in the stocks for a whole range of minor offenses. Um, people in the stocks would have been faced with public ridicule, right? You're out in the, in the street. Um, and again, you're doing this to your neighbors, uh, to your fellow community members, and it couldn't have been pleasant, but it was a very, very common activity. Another one, uh, which is interesting, uh, is public shaming. Uh, a lot of these activities, as I described, are in public places, and deterrence is, is, was meant to be a factor here. So one element of public shaming would be to, in, in terms of dealing with theft. So if you had someone who stole a vegetable from a community garden, so as an act of public shaming, the constable would arrest that offender. They would take that vegetable or a similar vegetable, hang it around the, the person's neck, and they would be forced, the constable would be with them, obviously, to walk through the main street of the town, kind of in shame with the, with the thing hung around their neck. Another one which gets lots of attention, I guess, is corporal punishment, uh, whipping. Uh, so I go to some length to describe that, yes, indeed, uh, uh, whipping took place in Newfoundland's early justice system. Indeed, I found that, if anything, it became a little more prevalent over time in the Napoleonic period than earlier. Uh, so this is whipping with the cat and nine tails, uh, the, kind of, uh, the kind of lash that people perhaps normally associate with the, with the British Navy. You could receive 10 to 20 lashes uh, in any one sitting, and this is this is a life-changing event for the uh, the damage done to someone's back after this kind of whipping took place would have been there for your entire life. It would have ravaged uh, ravaged the body. Um, so constables, not in all cases, but in many cases, because they were the only law officers present and available to the courts, were asked to perform this activity. So you can only imagine how that would have sat for them when they had to face their neighbors. Uh, there's all kinds of uh, other examples uh, in terms of crime and punishment uh, that are really interesting. Uh, I would say the ultimate punishment, uh, capital punishment, uh, certainly took place in Newfoundland hangings. Um, constables were not known to participate uh, in the actual uh, function of this, of capital punishment. They were not the hangman. In other words, the identities of these people uh, for the most part are not known, um, but they did provide uh, security uh, during those events. Again, these were public events. They were intended to have that kind of public effect. Uh, so they would have dealt with crowds. They would have escorted whenever possible uh, or whenever needed uh, the offenders uh, to the gibbet and so forth. Uh, so they, they, you know, from in punishments, large and small, I guess, and for crimes, large and small, constables played a, a significant role in all of these things. You've mentioned the lack of historical records in some areas of the province. However, you use surviving court records to tell some very interesting stories about individual constables. Can you tell us about one of the constables who you found particularly fascinating? I'd, I'd love to. And the first thing I would say, Nicole, is I think court records are amazing. Um, really, they're, they're this window, this amazing window onto the lives of ordinary people and this early modern people that you just don't get from other sources, um, you know, certainly, certainly in my period. And uh, I think speaking honestly, I would say that this book wouldn't exist uh, without them. 
again, really, we would know next to nothing about these people, these constables, these early police officers, their work and their contributions to society without court records. So I think they're just a, a treasure. The interesting thing in, in using them, I suppose, is that I've been able to take all these little bits and pieces to craft uh, this larger picture of a constable's life and labor. Um, in very few cases, however, do I get to meet these guys with any kind of depth. Uh, when I do, and throughout the book and, and some kind of some spin-off uh, publications, I've been trying to use their careers and their stories as kind of a, a microanalysis, a window uh, that paints a, a more in-depth picture. And this could be both in an urban setting. Uh, Timothy Mitchell, the longtime police inspector in St. John's from the 1850s to the 1870s. I focused on him and 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 learned quite a bit about his story as much as possible. And I'm doing the same thing for Richard Sullivan, who had a, this 40-odd-year career in Fairyland on the South Coast, South Athlone. But to end, I guess I would I would emphasize someone else. I would I would use the name William Fippard. Uh, I know really next to nothing about Mr. Fippard, uh, where he came from, his family life, all these sorts of things. Uh, but his career as a constable speaks to me as important in a number of respects. Uh, the first thing I would say is, and you know, I, and I've been emphasizing the theme of continuity on this kind of slow progress and slow reform. Uh, and I think he speaks to that. So the first time we come across William Fippard is about 1806 or 1807, and he's part of this tavern keeper system. So obviously he was a tavern keeper. Uh, so he represents this really odd system of policing in Newfoundland at the turn uh, of the 19th century. There's also a little bit of evidence that he became the first full-time policeman in this period and salary. When the system re reformed in 1812, and that system was replaced by a full-time constabulary for the first time, uh, the consensus pick as the new high constable to lead this force was William Fippert. So he, you know, he bridges these two periods uh, and he's high constable from 1812 right up into the early 1830s. So his police career in St. John's spans 25 odd years. It also spans three different periods. So the, the legal system in Newfoundland uh, was reformed again in the mid 1820s. Uh, the constabulary was kind of reconstituted, given new rules, uniforms, all these sorts of things and structure. And Fippert stayed on as the high constable and kind of the undisputed head and respected head of the police in St. John's. So his time spans three different eras of the early police in St. John's. And I would say even this even extends into the early 1830s when Newfoundland finally received representative government uh, and the legislature. He was still the high constable in that period. So he represents this continuity uh, despite all the things that are going on and also longevity. I would say. And he, in this period, he is also the constable for which we know by far the most in terms of his activities. So even in the early period, you see him uh, attending the courts uh, within the tavern keeper system, played an active role during the wars and kind of helping out the military and pursuing deserters and providing security. And then all the sorts of things that you would expect uh, a police constable to do. Uh, some of the other things that, that, make Fippard stand out is he seemed to be apolitical in a society that was becoming very political and mix in religion. And you had a bit of a, a dynamic mix there. 
Uh, I'm not sure about his religion, and I think in his professional life it didn't matter, and that's probably what made him a good constable. Uh, his story ends on a little bit of a sad note, but I think it's it's a good way to uh, end this discussion. So by the 1830s, uh, early 1830s, he's still the high constable. Uh, he's an older man. He's his his health is failing. He's starting to go blind uh, in both eyes, and there's just kind of rallying cry, public rallying cry, to get him a pension and get him some some health care and support uh, that he needs. And he becomes the focus of this petty little spat between uh, local politicians uh, and the British government over or sources of revenue uh, for things like policing and so forth. And he gets caught in the middle. I think speaking plainly, he deserved better. And I think the community was saying as much. Um, so I guess, I guess in that sense, his legacy is twofold and really speaks to a couple of themes that I've been talking about today. One is about this slow continuity of policing and change. And I think his treatment at the very end, is kind of like a form of rough justice. So, um, you know, he speaks to that too. In the foreword to the book, well-known Newfoundland politician, Ed Roberts, tells a story of how this book came together. In commissioning you to write this book, the RNC Historical Society has done a great service to the rich history of policing in Newfoundland. I enjoyed the book thoroughly. Thank you so much for joining us today, Keith. It was my great pleasure. Thank you, Nicole. My guest today has been Keith Mercer. He's the author of Rough Justice, Policing Crime and the Origins of the Newfoundland Constabulary, 1729 to 1871, published by Flanker Press in 2021. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can learn more about the Champlain Society. Please feel free to follow us on social media. This podcast was made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We would like to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Nicole O'Byrne. This interview was recorded on June 27th, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team. Mm -hmm.